Well, good evening. This evening, we are going to study Psalm 63. Psalm 63, but before we turn there, please join me in 2 Samuel 15. We'll begin in 2 Samuel 15 before making our way to Psalm 63. As you are turning there, I want to acknowledge that much of what I present this evening is, is not original with me but I have borrowed from others' work. I, I never intend to plagiarize another man's preaching or teaching or writing, but at the same time, I'm so often leaning on other men and their work in my own preparation, and, and I'm grateful for the help that I get by reading what others have, have written. I also want to acknowledge this evening that I have preached from Psalm 63 before. It was during COVID on a Wednesday evening. And here's my rationale, my logic, as I read through the Psalms and I come to appreciate a Psalm like Psalm 63, I say to myself, self, I say, this needs to be taught. This needs to be preached again. And who remembers what happened during COVID? Anybody remember? Nobody remembers that, right? And who remembers what I said on a Wednesday evening during COVID? Nobody remembers that. And so I think it's appropriate for us to return to Psalm 63 this evening and study that. But in preparation for Psalm 63, we begin in 2 Samuel 15. Again, another familiar Old Testament narrative that we've even referenced here in recent weeks as we've worked our way through selected psalms. In Psalm, 2 Samuel 15, David had to flee Jerusalem for the desert of Judah because his son Absalom was threatening to kill him and overtake the kingdom. Absalom had spent four years turning the hearts and the minds of the people of Israel against his father David and had won the loyalty of some 12,000 men, had mobilized those 12,000 men to overthrow his father in a military coup to gain the throne for himself. We pick up in 2 Samuel 15, verse number 1. After this, it happened that Absalom, that's King David's son, provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and, not, and, and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made a judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Folks, dirty politics is not a new phenomenon. That's what's happening here in 2 Samuel 15. Look at verse 13. 2 Samuel 15, verse 13. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, we are your servants ready to do whatever my lord the king Commands. And so for another time now in his life, David is a fugitive. 
Once before, we remember, David had to flee from King Saul who was seeking his life back in chapter, 1 Samuel 18 through 23. And now again, David had to flee from his own son who was seeking his life. If you turn the page to chapter 17, 2 Samuel 17, Absalom's armies are encamped near the mountain of Ephraim to, to prepare for battle against David the very next day. 2 Samuel 17, verse number one. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you when all return except the man whom you seek. All the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of, of Israel. And folks, this is nothing short of a military coup to overthrow the second king of Israel, King Saul, now King David, to overthrow King David. And I wish we had time to read the entire account. It's uh, full of intrigue, but I would have us jump to verse 26, 2 Samuel 17, verse 26. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Now what happened when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shobai, the son of Nahash from Rabah of the people of Ammon, Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rojalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd. For David and the people were with him to eat, for they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. David and his detail needed provisions. They needed supplies for they were weary, hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. And it's at this point here that Bible scholars believe that King David would have penned Psalm 63. You can turn there now with me. David is staring death in the face, death at the hands of the armies of his own son. He's in the wilderness, he's hungry, he's weary, and he's thirsty. And where could David turn at a time like this? Where could David look for answers to impossible circumstances? Perhaps this evening you are facing impossible circumstances on the home front or on the job front or perhaps in some other way, your, your physical health or your financial situation, where do you look? I've written there at the top of the notes that I provided and I placed there in the foyer for you, desolate and desperate in 2 Samuel 17. David looked in four directions in Psalm 63. He looked inward. In verses 1 through 3, he looked, um, he then looked upward in verses 7 to 8, he looked backward. In verses 9 to 11, he looked forward to the pending battle the next day. And so this evening, I'd like us to work our way through Psalm 63. Often we read the Psalms quickly, hoping for some devotional thought, but we'll take the time to labor through Psalm 63 in, in this context. Let's pray. God in heaven, I, I ask that you would go before us now as we study this psalm. Lord, we understand its background. We understand the circumstances. Lord, David was hungry, weary, thirsty in the wilderness. And Lord, for some this evening, 
They, they may feel, we may feel that we are in the wilderness and we're hungry and weary and thirsty and Lord, we don't know where to look. We don't know where to turn. We don't know um, how we might survive the threat that is before us. I pray that you would help us to identify with David, not just in his circumstance, but in his solution, the answer to his problems. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Number one in your notes, an inward look. David is looking inward. It's David's present condition. His present condition, and as he looked inward at his present condition, he, he recognized that he had a problem. Letter A, he had a problem. According to the title of Psalm 63, David's problem was that he was in the wilderness of Judah. The superscript there, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Of course, he wasn't in the wilderness for for no reason, he was in the wilderness of Judah because he had this problem. And not a week goes by in our lives where we are faced with problems and we could spend the rest of the evening sharing our problems with one another. David's problem is that he had gone from the wonder of Jerusalem as the king to the wilderness of Judah as a fugitive. He is displaced from his palace. He is defending his position. His throne is in jeopardy. His life is in danger. And at times like that, we find ourselves alone and afraid. We're pushed to a place of desperation. He had a problem, but in his desperation, he also, let her be, he had a passion. He had a passion, verse number one, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. David's present condition, he had a problem, but he had a passion which was for God. Now, it's one thing to be in the wilderness, sleeping out under the stars, swatting mosquitoes, listening to the haunting sounds of the wildlife. Some of you call that a vacation, right? It's another thing to be in the wilderness um, against your will, where there is no water. For while it's possible to su survive some of the elements of the wilderness involuntarily, you cannot live without a supply of water. Of course, that's a foreign notion to us. We live in the land of 10,000 lakes, I think maybe actually 14,000 lakes, I heard perhaps. They're freshwater lakes, and, and so it's hard for us to appreciate the importance of water. But in Israel, in the Middle East there, water was an invaluable commodity, for it was in short supply, and a lack of water was a serious threat to one's health and one's life. And so while David's material problem was he's in the wilderness in need of supplies. We read this back in 2 Samuel 17. He was hungry, he was weary, he was thirsty, and others had to bring supplies to him. Yet in this case, his passion is for God in verse number one. And his passion for water, as strong as that might have been, it didn't compare to the passion he had for God. I, re I remember the years in which um, Kim and I would go through the daily bedtime routine with our kids. And those of you that are parents have children, you understand the routine. We, we put the kids' jammies on, their pajamas. We have them brush their teeth. We say goodnight. Uh, they have to kiss the cat or the dog goodnight. They have to find their favorite stuffed animal. We put them to bed. We turn off the light. We close the door. And we do the whole routine, right? But inevitably, after a few moments you would hear one of them call or see one of them peeking through the door of their room and they would say, Daddy, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink of water? And so how would I answer? 
No, you've already had a drink of water and you've been put to bed and so shut the door and go to bed. Okay, so a few minutes later, the door opens again and you hear the small little voice, right? This time it's, mommy, can I have a drink of water, right? (laughs) And what maybe dad would not afford them, perhaps uh, mom would, and they would ask, "So, so what are we to do? Is my child being disobedient and manipulating me? Yes. Um, is my child suffering from the pains of dehydration? Probably not. But if you've ever been thirsty, it is a nagging thing, isn't it? And it's hard to go to sleep when you're thirsty. And, and so we might be sympathetic. And, and I know you're all judging my parenting skills. That's fine. Um, <laughs> But we got smart and we learned to to make our kids get a drink of water before they go to bed. But of course now, today's generation, they all have water bottles, right? They carry water bottles like everywhere. That's a thing to do. And so uh, send your kid with a a Yeti water bottle or whatever you need to do. And um, so David here is in the wilderness and he is thirsty. He has a passion, but it's not for water. But his passion for water reminds him of his longing for God. Verse number one there, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. If I were King David in the wilderness, I would have been thinking about the velvet pillow in the palace in Jerusalem. I would have been thinking of the royal vineyards. I would have been longing for water or for food, and yet he desired the presence of God more than life itself. And to the degree that he thirsted for water in the wilderness of Judah, he had a passion for God. I don't know that each of us would write the same if we were to pen a psalm as David did. He had a problem, he had a passion. Third, he had a pursuit. He had a pursuit. Verse number two, so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. The the sanctuary here mentioned in verse two probably refers to the times when as a king he tarried long in the temple or the, the tabernacle there enjoying the power and the glory of God. And that was his pursuit. In the darkest hours of our lives, in the greatest crises of our lives, when we are a victim, when we are suffering injustice at the hand of another, perhaps the government or the boss or the teacher or the coach or your pastor or your son even, think about that. When you are suffering that condition and and you look for an answer, where do you want to go? Most of us simply want our circumstances to be changed. We want compensation. So we go to the manager. Or we want retribution, so we go to the lawyer. Or we want better health, so we go to a doctor. But David, after, the, the man after God's own heart, he looked to God in that condition, that present condition. And he had a pursuit, which leads us then, number two, David's, David's inward look was his present condition. That's number one. Number two, David's upward look is his purposed Communion, his purposed communion. And so inwardly, he's looking inwardly in verses one and two, he finds his heart searching for God. 
Now he's looking upward in verses 3 through 6, and he's reminded of the, the, the sweetness of God. And, and I want you to notice how David is talking to himself. We've even referenced this over the last few weeks of, of counseling oneself or speaking truth to oneself. And he's talking with himself. He's talking himself into communion with God by reminding himself of God's attributes and his activities and his worth and his works. And he's proposing, or I'm sorry, purposing this communion. He's willing it to be. This is a matter of volition. He's manufacturing a right response in his present condition. Look at verse number three. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. That's letter A, his witness in speech. David praised God because God's loving kindness was better even than life itself. It's quite a statement. For David was a marked man. His life was sure to be over. And yet he declared God's loving kindness to be better than the preservation of his own life. My mind goes back to those who have been martyred for the Christian faith over the course of of centuries, convinced that God's loving kindness was better than life. You read the record of the the, the martyrs, and, and do you know what was common to them? It's reported that in their final breaths, even while enduring torture, they're verbally praising God. How can they do that? Is it because they were in a good mood? Is it because they, they felt like it? Is it because they were having a, a sentimental worship moment? They were volitionally purposing to witness in their speech, I will praise God because his loving kindness is better even than my life. Look at verse number four. Thus I will bless you while I live, which may be another day. I will lift up my hands in your Name. That's his worship in spirit. His witness in speech, letter A, his worship in spirit. To bless God, there the, the Hebrew barak. It, it describes the, the, the ascribing of, of adoration and worship by, by kneeling. And then the lifting up the hands here. It was an Old Testament posture of prayer and, and, and that pictured the ascent of prayer and the readiness to receive an answer for that prayer. The gestures of the bended knee and the uplifted hands were the expressions of David's heart and spirit in worship. Verse number five, my soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness. We sang of this this evening. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. That's his letter C, wealth of satisfaction. His wealth of satisfaction. And, and today, folks, we search for satisfaction in every other place every other thing, every other person other than than God. We're troubled. We try to go to sleep. So we watch TV or we eat or we shop. We look for pleasures and possessions to fulfill us. One man has profoundly said this. I, I should have printed it for you. He said, I am persuaded that all of our problems are conceived and born in the sinful belief that something or someone other than Jesus Christ can quench the thirst of our souls. If I only was married, if I only had a child, if I only had a better job, if I only was taller, if I was only shorter. I've never thought that. I, <laughs> if, only, if only I had more money, if only I was more popular, if only I lived in the South, if only you fill in the blank. You see, if only then I would be satisfied. But David says he'll be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, the, the choice parts, the, 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 the abundance. 
and he satisfied himself in his awful condition, and he counted that condition as a choice part. Verse number six, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. That's his wisdom in secret. His wisdom in secret. Do not confuse this as some new age transcendental meditation of emptying one's mind and and abandoning all thoughts. This is the proper meditation of filling one's mind and fixing one's thoughts on God. And folks, there is wisdom in secret meditation. And the secret is meditation on the person of God. Certainly in verse number six, he's meditating on the worth of God, his attributes. But then in verses seven and eight, he's meditating on the works of God. That's his activity. Verses seven and eight, because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. And so his wisdom in secret is is thinking on and meditating on God's worth and his works. But in this case, he's not looking inward at his present condition. He's not looking upward with purpose communion. He's now number three. He's looking backward. And this is his past comfort. His past comfort. And he's looking back on what God has done for him in the past. Someone has once said, the easiest way to trust God in the present is to remember his help in the past. So now follow this. I've I've repeated it a few times now. David looked inwardly, verses 1 and 2, and he found his heart searching for God. David looked upward in verses 3 through 6, and he was reminded of the sweetness of God. David looked backward in verses 7 and 8. I just read these. And his heart found security in God because of the times that God had helped him in the past, beginning with letter A, his protection. God was his protection. In verse number seven, because you have been my help. When was God ever David's help? Hmm. Oh, I remember when David was a shepherd boy and there was a lion and a bear. I remember when David went to to fight Goliath and there God was his help. We could go through the life of David. You could go through the course of your own life biography and you could identify occasions in which God was your help. But more than just God being his help in verse 7, in verse 8 he says, my soul follows close behind you. God was his pattern, letter B. God was his pattern. Years of closeness to the Lord, following after God when God seemed far from him. You've heard it said, if God seems far away, guess who moved, right? Perhaps it's us who have not pursued or followed after the Lord. God was his pattern. And then also there in verse number eight, your right hand upholds me. Let her see, God was his power or protection. Again, we had protection up at letter A, but protection, your right hand upholds me. And that right hand signifies God's power and protection. So then finally, verses 9 through 11, David is going to look forward. He's looking forward to the battles that lie in front of him, and his heart will find strength in God. Now notice this progression. Verses 1 and 2. 
God, David, David looks inward. He finds his heart searching for God. Verses 3 through 6, David looks upward. His heart finds sweetness in God. Verses 7 and 8, he looks backward. His heart finds security in God. And now verses 9 through 11, he's looking forward. And his heart finds strength in God. Before I give you number four, let let me read verses 9 through 11. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Who's the king here? Verse 11. Well, that's David. David is the king. But the king, I will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by God shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. This is number four, a forward look. David's problems are corrected. David's problems are corrected. So how is it that David's problems are corrected? First, number one, or letter A, I guess, his adversaries were condemned. Now, think back with me to 2 Samuel 15. Think back to 2 Samuel 17 and such. The army commanded by Absalom would attack the very next morning. Yet David expressed confidence that God would give him the victory. That that opposing army was certainly stronger than David's ragtag little group. But God was on the side of David, the true anointed king of Israel, And so David's prophetic words in verses 9 and 10 would literally come to pass the next day. We know the outcome. We know the rest of the story. But let's go there. 2 Samuel 18. 2 Samuel 18. And let me read of it for you. 2 Samuel 18. How about we pick up in verse number 6. Keep your finger in Psalm 63, by the way. But 2 Samuel 18, verse number 6. Six. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. That's David, King David. And the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David. And a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under a thick boughs of a great terebinth tree and his head caught in the terebinth tree so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth and the mule with which he was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I saw, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him and why did you not struck him there to the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to retrieve a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king's command commanded you and Abishai and, and Itai, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. And so there, God took care of the situation in his own way, in a graphic way as we read. Who could have predicted? Who could have forecast the the deliverance of David in this way as his son Absalom was tragically hanged uh, there in the terebinth tree. And so David's adversaries were condemned. 
But then back in Psalm 63, verse 11, the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Uh, I would offer you letter B, his allies, David's allies, were able to celebrate. They were able to celebrate. Those who were on the Lord's side could glory in the Lord. I'd like to do an exercise here this evening. I'd like to read through Psalm 63 again. I know we read it earlier in the service. We've studied it. I'd like to read it again in full so that we might track and trace David's inward look, his upward look, his backward look, and his forward look when he was looking for an answer. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, that's Yahweh there. Oh Yahweh, you are my God, my Elohim. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So much so that before even we're killed by, by my son Absalom, we might die of, of dehydration. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you, even in this circumstance. Thus I will bless you while I live, for as long as I live, maybe just a day. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. I'll find my satisfaction, Lord, in you alone even if I never make it back to the palace and that velvet pillow and those royal vineyards and such. Verse number six, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help in the past. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice the protection that's provided there in the shadow of his wings. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, which was the case, as we read in 2 Samuel 18. But the king, that's me, I shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him, who's loyal to him, whose allegiance is to him, shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Is it possible for us today to find our joy in God alone, in our relationship with God alone? Is it possible for us today in our circumstances to be satisfied in God alone? But pastor, you don't understand what I'm going through. Probably not. But may you be satisfied and may your joy be full in God. Let's pray. God, we look everywhere for answers to our problems. And Lord, we have problems. We have needs. Lord, we're lonely. We're lost. Lord, we're hurting and weary. Lord, we may even be thirsty and hungry, but our soul purposes to be satisfied in you alone. Lord, help us to speak truth to ourselves and purpose to meditate on you, your worth, and your works. Lord, may we trust you for the answers, and may our joy 
be found in you. For I pray this in Jesus' name.